All right. Uh, thank you all. Come on in. Um, get a handout, if you will. I want to begin with uh, the story about three men who are riding to work. And um, <clears throat> they're talking about success. What, what is success? What is success to you? And the first guy says, well, success to me is being invited to the White House to speak to the president. They think for a minute, and the second guy chimes in, he says, no, success is being invited to the White House to speak to the president, and the red phone rings, but he won't answer it because he's with you. <laughs> Finally, the third guy said, no, success is being invited to the White House to speak to the president, and the red phone rings, and he answers it, and he says, it's for you. <laughs> Going back to Jesus' day, his disciples had visions of success. They had a dream. They knew he was Messiah. They had faith in him. They, they saw in him the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Their faith was valid. And they knew that he could reign. He could set up the kingdom. And it would be a joy-filled experience. And they were his inside group. They anticipated, since they had served him, they'd left everything to be with him, to follow him, to get the message out about the kingdom of God that was coming. They anticipated they would be part of his associates, his people to help him with this new kingdom. It could happen. It was something that was predicted. This is not out of the, out of the character of the Old Testament. <clears throat> but there was a condition for the kingdom to take root. And that condition is met in one word, the word repentance. The people, both the leaders and the common people, would have to repent. They drifted from the Lord. They would have to get back with the Lord. They would have to be right with him. And word, thought, and deed, their actions would have to line up with the character that was required for the people of God to experience the blessings of God. For this kingdom to come, they had to repent. And after all, isn't that what John the Baptist said? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was his message. What was Jesus' message as he went around to the various villages? Same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so they're anticipating this glory of being able to be on his right hand and his left in this ruling kingdom. Could have happened. But did the people repent? Did the rulers repent? No. And because of that, the offer was withdrawn, at least from that time. Now think about it. These guys had left everything. They'd left family. They'd left their businesses to follow him. 
And now, as they're headed towards Jerusalem, he tells them he's going to be crucified. They're going to kill him. Right now, at that point, they felt crushed. They were more than disappointed. Their dreams were being dashed. And after all, they had left everything to follow him. Now he is telling them he's going to leave them. Disappointment is where they're at. Well, we talk about depression today. There was every bit as many reasons back in Jesus' day, even among his followers. Being a Christian does not exempt us from pain. No doubt some of you are having trials right now. Jesus' words apply today, just as they did when he spoke them. So was this the end of every hope when he told them he was leaving? No. At a time when the disciples were most vulnerable, Jesus revealed to them something to give them great hope. Jesus offers them a new message. One, and I cannot say this strongly enough, this new message was never revealed before. What was the message? Well, let me read it to you from John chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Well, first, Jesus cautions them. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Jesus was heading there first. He's going to heaven. But they would join him. What kind of place is this? One where Jesus has been preparing to have us join him. Some say he's been preparing it now for over 2,000 years. It must be incredible. Well, they were troubled. And we often get focused on us, don't we? We're the center of the universe. Call it the theo ego or the, the big eye. We've got to reset our sights on something higher. Really, someone higher. Every Jewish person had been challenged to trust in God. Now Jesus reveals he's on a level with God. And he challenges them 
to trust him as well. Now, peace comes when we practice this. So let's set our, height, our sights on the problem solver and not the problem for a while. And let's redirect our attention to the higher plane. Jesus looks heavenward. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. My Father's house, where is that? It's in heaven. His destination is to go back where he started from, his heavenly home. Now, in the King James Version, we're used to hearing the the expression, many mansions. Here it's translated many rooms. The Greek word is rare, but it has the idea of a place to remain. Uh, It's monai, or it's from the Greek verb uh, meno, to remain, to abide. These are not mansions. No doubt what Christ's going to make for us will be outstanding. And then verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that there you also may be where I am. Now, friends, here we come to the subject of tonight's lesson, though you may not have even realized it. If you're listening for the word rapture, you notice it's not here. It's not in this text, but the idea is there. Jesus is going away so he can come back and take us to be where he is. That's called the rapture. This is the first mention of the rapture in the Bible. I was in a lay institute class on Thursday nights at Dallas Seminary. It was a night class, as I said, and it was open to anyone. And in the class, someone raised their hand, and the the class was on uh, the prophets, and they raised their hand and can you, can you tell me what the rapture is? Well, it's a big class, lots of people, and they were snickering around the room when this person said that. But the instructor handled it very tactfully. He said, instead of making fun of the person, he said, now there may be other people in this room that have that same question, so let's deal with that. And so he gives them a definition of the rapture. I I liked the way he did that. He didn't assume any base knowledge. So I won't assume any base knowledge, but I want to build our word power right now and give you a definition of the rapture. Rapture is the event in which Christ returns from heaven to the clouds and snatches up living as well as dead believers in him. Then all return with Christ to heaven to be with him forever. Well, someday Jesus will return in the clouds. The rapture is promised to Christians, to his disciples. He makes this promise to them. And it's also known in the epistles as the blessed hope. The church will be raptured someday. 
And each generation holds out the possibility that theirs might be the one. Now, not everybody is up to speed on this because there are some teachers and some churches who don't teach the passages we're going to cover tonight. And therefore, the people have never heard about this concept. Can you imagine what it will be when the rapture takes place and all of a sudden, they're a thousand feet up? Wow. (laughs) Pretty amazing stuff. Well, we're going to look at three major passages. Right now, we're going to begin with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We've looked at John 14. The second is 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. Now, let's work through this gold mine together. First, look at what Paul, or what causes Paul to write about this to the Thessalonian believers. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest who have no hope. Paul had been there only a short time, just three weeks. But in that time, he'd given them a lot of content of doctrine. And he really focuses with the Thessalonians on end-time events and upon the return of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, you find that in all five chapters of this epistle. They had an interest in future things, and he is happy to, to give it to them. Only something had caused them to have great concern. What was it that stirred them up? They were ignorant about what happened to believers who had died. And so Paul had been teaching there, and then he had left. And while he was gone, some of their church members, family members, had passed away. And he told them about this blessed event that was coming. But they didn't know what happened to people who had died in the faith. And so they thought about, poor Aunt Millie, she's going to miss that blessed event. And so this had gotten back to Paul. And he doesn't want them to be ignorant. He wants to present the truth to them. By the way, this, this picture, fall asleep, is a word picture. And it's based on the idea that the body appears to have fallen asleep at death. The soul, it doesn't sleep. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I write that when people pass away. I send them a note of encouragement about their, their relative who's a believer. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 8. And it's a promise that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So in these situations, it's appropriate to grieve, but not as the lost do. Yes, when someone close to us dies, we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. We do have hope. And Paul lays it out for us. Paul offers these words that encourage. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Believers are said to have fallen asleep. Not so, Jesus 
They use that word with its full force. He died. It doesn't soften it. He took the full force of a horrible death, and he did it for our benefit. His unjust execution was followed by a victorious breakthrough. Jesus broke free of death, and his victory came in the form of bodily resurrection. He came back to life, never to experience death again. He beat it. He rose from the dead. Next, Paul gives more reasons for hope. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Are you worried about those who have died in Christ? These believers were. But Jesus is coming back, and he will bring your loved ones with you. We believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. So they don't miss out on this wonderful event. They will be part of the big day when we're raptured. Paul lays the worries of his readers to rest with these reassuring thoughts. Paul continues with the statement, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you, that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. We who are still alive, that holds out the hope that every generation has that we might be part of that generation that doesn't have to experience death. You've got two options. We could die and go to be with the Lord, or we could be raptured and not die. I bet most of us would prefer the second option. <laughs> I know I would. By the way, let me say this. People always ask when. Let me tell you straight out. I do not set dates. I do not set dates. Now, some people will say, well, we can't accept the exact date, but... And then they'll go out and try to date set. <laughs> I don't do that. The Lord didn't tell us when. We need to respect his choice. But we always have this hope. He tells us to watch. So we look forward to this wonderful event. And he says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. Look at this, with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. <clears throat> the rapture is such a high priority event that he comes himself. Just as he went up, to heaven in Acts chapter 1, so he returns from heaven to gather the ones he loves. Three things accompany this great event. First, a loud command. It's a term of an officer giving an order. Christ 
gives the order for the rapture to begin. Second, the voice of the archangel is heard. An archangel is a chief angel, the one who takes the order from Christ and passes it out to the other angels. Third is the trumpet call of God. Tony Evans says that there are two reasons for God to sound a trumpet in Scripture. One is to call to worship, and the other is a call to war. This is both. Our chief occupation in heaven and throughout eternity will be to give praise and glory to God. We are called to worship, beginning at the rapture, where we'll be with him in heaven and can for the first time worship him in person. When we experience the awesomeness of his presence, we will do so with great joy. The second reason for a trumpet blast from God is to signal war. When we, the church, are called out, get ready. God is about to unleash war on all who have rejected him, who have rejected his son, and who have rejected the salvation that he offers. The trumpet signals war. Well, Paul is teaching this to believers to encourage. They were afraid their friends and family who had died would miss the rapture. Not only would they not miss it, Paul says they get a head start. The dead in Christ rise first. Why? Someone has said, since most people were buried, they have six feet farther to go to get to the Lord. So they get a head start. (laughs) All who are saved from the time of Pentecost until the rapture, they're, they're dead, their souls are in heaven, they'll be given resurrection bodies at this time. Now, do you believe in Easter? Yeah. Then you should believe in the rapture. Paul ties the two together. If Christ rose from the grave on Easter morning, then it is just as likely he will raise believers on rapture morning. Verse 17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds. All the dead believers from 33 AD until the rapture will experience resurrection. Their souls will descend with Christ from heaven. Their bodies will come up out of the grave and the two will be joined. At that time, we will see those folks that we have missed. Perhaps you're looking forward to seeing some people. I know I am. And we will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Prepare for flight duty. The word caught up deserves special attention. If you were to look in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible do you find the word rapture. 
but you won't find the words Trinity, Bible, or Second Coming in the Bible either. Rapture is from the Latin word, rapturo. So, rapture is in the Latin Bible. It's just not in our English translations. Many theological terms like this come from Latin. The word caught up in Greek, which is the language of our New Testament, is harpazo, which translates this word. And it means to seize, to take by force. It has the idea of something that happens quickly and with great power. That describes the rapture. It has been called the great snatch. Jesus comes from heaven and snatches us up. Whatever we're doing at that time will cease because we'll be gone. The bumper sticker, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned, seems reasonable. Airplanes, which are piloted by Christian pilots, may crash. Certainly, there will be a massive commotion when this happens. It will be front page news. And most lost people will not know what to make of this event. We will have an aerial view. Now, why are we to experience this? To meet the Lord in the air. This is the point. Down on earth, some Christians have experienced great joy. We worship Christ. We can experience the rush of fellowship and communion with our loving Father and with His Son, our Savior, Jesus. Others have yet to experience that deep level of worship. It will be a new and positive experience. But this is what the rapture is all about. Reuniting. We are reunited with people we've been separated with by death. And we will be reunited with the one who loves us more than we can know. Jesus' love for us is deep. We will be joined with him to experience him in ways we could only imagine before. Psalm, 11, Psalm 12, 11 says, In his presence is fullness of joy. Well, Paul tags another phrase that encourages. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. This positive event will not be erupted by long and sad periods of separation. Once reunited, always reunited. Where he goes, we go. He picks us up, we go back up to heaven together. When he comes back down for the second coming, we go with him. When he rules and reigns, we are there. We will experience him in great ways because we're with him. The rapture is a treasured truth that was to bring comfort for believers. 
Tim LaHaye tells of this event in his San Diego church where a husband and wife who loved each other dearly. Charles was a beloved deacon in the church, but he had a heart condition. It was common in his family. He'd lost his other brothers previously, and finally the day came when, because of his weak heart, the Lord called him home to heaven. When the church had the funeral, his wife was there, and she was she was crying. She was visibly displaying grief. But her sister, who was not a believer, didn't share their faith or their hope. She was just weeping uncontrollably. And finally, after a period of time, the wife, though still distraught, said to her, Esther, don't carry on so. I'll see Charles again when Christ comes to get his church. The rapture can be great hope for believers. Well, now we come to the third major passage of the rapture, and it's 1 Corinthians 15. It's dubbed the resurrection chapter. It covers this important topic, and it answers questions like, what will my new resurrection body be like? Anybody like to know that? <laughs> yeah. One bit of information. These new believers were in a sea of different philosophical wash. Like today, biblical spirituality was not the norm. Death was something that was feared back then. Pagans believed that some form of life after death was true, but it was seen as dreary. The dead people were called shades. Then as now, death was something people recoil from. Views expressed in the Bible were at odds with the culture. One view was traced back to Plato. He taught that the soul was immortal. It would never die. But the body... That was different. When a person died, that was it for the body. The reason for that was the body was considered to be evil. The soul was considered to be good. So the idea of a resurrected body was repulsive to the followers of Plato. They were grossed out by the idea of a bodily resurrection. In contrast to their view... The Bible pictures material as being something God made. In the beginning, God created, and it was good. Likewise, the body that Christ came back with was good. Exceptional, in fact. In contrast to their view, the Bible pictures material as something God made. It was good. Now, this chapter is crucial. It explains not only what our new bodies and new experiences will be like, but it also tells us about the rapture. Let's look at the resurrection and how it connects with the rapture. Chapter 15 is a chapter of contrasts. Look how Paul contrasts the physical body, which we all have now, with the resurrected body, which we will one day receive. So let's look at this. 
Jim, I see why you had challenge with this. <laughs> All right. You have the physical body and the resurrection body. The physical body was described in 1 Corinthians 15 as perishable. The resurrected body is raised imperishable. It can't cease to be. The physical body was sown in dishonor. No corpse has rights. The physical body, the resurrected body rather, is raised in glory. It is a superior existence. The physical body has weakness. It needs sleep. We get hungry. We need water. The resurrected body is raised in power. It's the Greek word dunamai, from which we get our word dynamite, from you sense the power. Well, that's describing our new resurrection body. I'd like to have a body that's dynamite, wouldn't you? <laughs> the physical body is a natural body. It's suited to this present life. It has to have food and so forth. The resurrected body is a spiritual body. It will be suited for places including heaven. The first is in Adam's likeness, limited and the second one, the resurrected body, is in Christ's likeness. It's free from limits. Just as we get common traits like hair color and fingerprints from those we are descended from, so our body will have traits in common with Christ's body. It never dies. And then last, one is mortal and the other is immortal. Now think of your own experience. When you get sick, say a stomach virus, you throw up. Perhaps you even get the dry heaves. Boy, you know you're sick. And you know when your body has weaknesses. As we get older, aches and pains become the norm. Who would want to live forever without a glorified body? Now, when we're given a new body, all the physical ailments are gone. No more stomach virus, no more backache, no more pain, no more fear of death. Your body is immortal just like Christ's. When does this happen? The Bible never says when. So far, it's been about 2,000 years since Paul wrote about these words. They're still true, and we are still waiting with anticipation. We do know something about this, though. We know we will receive our new bodies at the rapture. First Corinthians 15 says, verse 51, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. I'll go ahead and read a portion of it. In a flash, in, a twink in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, 
The dead in Christ will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So Paul says, listen, I tell you a mystery. Now, what is a mystery in the Bible? Mystery in a Bible is something that has never before been revealed. But when Paul says this, he's revealing it. He's telling it to them for the first time. He's solving the mystery. Now, specifically, there is the possibility that you may not have to experience physical death. Before this, everybody had thought in order to get to heaven, they would have to die first and then go to heaven. But Paul is telling them there's the possibility that they might not have to die. Some Christians would not have to die. He holds out the hope that some will be raptured. They'll be raptured first, which is the, that is the mystery that Paul reveals. He said, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. That is, we cannot inherit the eternal phase of God's kingdom in our old physical bodies. It wasn't designed for that. If we are raptured today, we will be going straight to heaven and God will give us an immortal, perfect body. And then he says, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. <laughs> a favorite verse for nursery workers, right? But that, again, is a different kind of changed. <laughs> so what is sleep here? Paul's not saying taking a nap. Sleep is used in the New Testament to refer to death for believers. It's a figure of speech based on appearance. I mean, you, a person dies, you lay them out on their bed usually, and they look like they're sleeping. And the body has died, it looks like that, it looks like they're sleeping. Paul says not all Christians will die. Some will live until the rapture and then be resurrected. This will happen in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. <clears throat> so this will not take place over a long period of time. It will happen in a flash. Someone has calculated that it takes about one twentieth of a second to blink an eye. We'll be resurrected and out of there before those who are left could grab hold of us. This will take place at the last trumpet. You just heard about this trumpet in 1 Thessalonians 4. Remember there? What is this trumpet? Many views have been expressed. One common but incorrect view is that it is the same as the seventh trumpet in the book of Revelation. These are not the same. The last trumpet here is for Christians. The seventh trumpet in the book of Revelation, is for unbelievers. It calls down more judgment upon those who have rejected Christ. Different purpose, different people, different time. The last trumpet is a military term. In the Roman army encampments, trumpets were sounded to cause the soldiers to wake up, 
to pack up gear, to fall in line, and to march away. The last trumpet is for Christians. It's our call to go to heaven. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So that trumpet takes place, and we're called up. Now, some Corinthians mocked the resurrection. It was foolishness to them. But Paul teaches that death is not the victor, but the defeated. Death has been beaten. God snatches us up and gives us immortal bodies. It will be glorious. As a result of Paul's teaching... It should promote faithful, holy living in the present life of the believer. It should give him or her steadfastness or a stable purposefulness in his living. He should be immovable, not vacillating between carnality and spirituality. He should be exceedingly zealous to do God's work out of gratitude for all the Lord has done for him. He should be positive and optimistic in his outlook, especially since he has the promise of a new body. This hope should eliminate depression, <clears throat> self-pity, and a defeatist, pessimistic viewpoint of life. Now you take all of this truth and you combine it together and you get the following picture of the rapture. Christ died and rose three days later. Christ left earth to go to heaven. Christ is preparing a place for us in heaven. Christ comes down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and Christ will bring with those, uh, will bring those who have fallen asleep. The dead in Christ will rise first, and living Christians will be caught up or raptured with them. We'll be with the Lord in the air. I'll meet the Lord in the air. Christ will take us with him to heaven. We will be with Christ for how long? Forever. Forever. Amen. What an incredible future God has predicted for us. It is miraculous. It has no twin in other religions. Can you think of any other religion that has anything comparable to the rapture? I don't know of any. And it can be a source of anticipation and great encouragement. We're going to take a major shift here. And I'm going to do this to illustrate the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, as well as give you what I think is one of the truly amazing prophecies in the Old Testament. We're going back to Daniel. We're going to be talking about a prophecy that he received from God. And it concerns Daniel chapter 7. So we're going to read some of those verses here. 
in the first year of Belshazzar, he's the king, this is after Nebuchadnezzar, and this is about 553 BC, and he's currently the king of Babylon. Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off. And it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man. And the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me stood a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings, like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. The horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. All right. So, um, Daniel's dream concerns the great sea. What sea would that be? The Mediterranean Sea. So what's happening at Club Med? <laughs> there are four beasts that come on the scene, one after another. They're described as coming out of the sea. Now, in biblical prophecy, I take it that when the land is talked about, it's the Holy Land, talking about Israel, talking about the Jewish people. But when things come up out of the sea, the, the sea was perceived to be evil, and Gentiles invaded from the sea, the, the, the sea peoples came and invaded. So these are Gentile powers in succession of one another, four different ones. The first, remember what it was? It's a lion, right? Yeah, 
Okay, symbol of strength, a fierce predator. And he has two wings. Wings speak of speed. He's fast. The lion and the eagle are both used in Scripture for Babylon. This is Babylon. Let me give you some proofs that Babylon is the eagle and the lion. Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 7 and 13, Babylon is a lion. In verse 7, his horses are swifter than eagles. Verse 13. Jeremiah 49, verses 16, 19, 22, and 23. The lion and the eagle represent specifically the king, Nebuchadnezzar. Ezekiel 17, verse 3, there's a great eagle, and that represents Babylon. Also, this one creature, this is one creature and not two. Erwin uh, Baxter, who is known for his end-time ministries, um, died two years ago from COVID. I just found out today. But he said that this was talking about two countries, Britain, and, and of course, Britain brought people over here to the United States. So he saw it as Britain and the United States. But this is picturing one country. Now, since we're talking about Britain and the United States, we might ask this question. Is America in Bible prophecy? And the answer is no. There's no explicit reference to America. Why not? Well, some have thought, well, obviously America has ceased to exist. But it doesn't say that. If there's no reference, we can't determine that to be true, can we? It could be that America is diminished in power, is not as much of a power. But I'll tell you what I think. I think the problem is we see everything centered around us. We see everything centered around our country. We think our country is the only country that matters. But in the Bible, what country is God's country? What is the capital of God's country? Jerusalem. It says in Scripture that Jerusalem is the city where he has chosen his glory to dwell. And so it's not surprising that America would not be in biblical prophecy. I mean, you have Israel and you have the countries around it that affect it. That's God's story. That's where God is acting out his plan primarily. And we've been blessed to have missionaries come over and share with us. and We've become believers. I don't think it means that America has to cease to exist. I just don't think it is the center of biblical prophecy. Now, getting back to Nebuchadnezzar, the lion. <clears throat> As I said, he's the king of Babylon. Wings are torn off. Sounds a lot like the humbling experience King Neb had in chapter 4. Do you remember that? You know, he was proud and, and he was boastful. And he is warned and he refuses to heed the warning. Finally, about a year later, he's boasting. And right then, judgment falls. And he's 
basically goes insane. He thinks he's an animal. He starts eating grass and he just crawls around like an animal for a period of time. Very humbling experience. But then what happened? God restored his sanity. And it sounds like a heart of a man giving to him is a picture of his restoration, of his new humble attitude. Perhaps he became a believer in the one true God. In any case, he now has a proper heart, not a beastly heart. So now we come to the second beast, a bear. He lumbers along, not as fast as the lion. This bear represents the joint rule of two countries, Media and Persia, both what would be in today's boundaries of the country of Iran. And they take over after Babylon. This bear is raised up on one side, signifying the dominance of Persia over Media. The ribs that this bear likes to devour. Anybody like ribs? Well, this bear does. It was a nation that devoured other nations. And the three ribs, the three nations, are most likely Babylon, because we know that they defeated him, Lydia, current Turkey, and Egypt. It was told to eat. That is, devour other nations. Notice, it's not in control of its destiny. Another is sovereign over it. The third nation is described as a leopard with four wings. If the lion is fast with two wings, you know that the leopard has four wings. It's doubly fast. This accurately pictures Alexander the Great. He's king of Greece or Macedonia. His speed allowed him to conquer the Mediterranean world and still have time to sip pina coladas as a young man. He is master at what today has been described as the Blitzkrieg, the lightning war. Well, note that the speed seen in Greece uh, is seen in Alexander's takeover of Medo-Persia, which took place from 334 to 330 BC. But what in the world do the four heads mean on this leopard? Well, Alexander died as a young man. He had no heir. And so four kings come from the generals, the ranks that followed Alexander. These four kings are Lysimachus, he ruled over Thrace, Cassander, who ruled over Macedonia and Greece, Seleucus, who ruled over from Syria to India, and finally Ptolemy, who ruled over Egypt and Palestine, which would include Israel. <clears throat> now the fourth beast. We come to this fourth beast that is so terrible, it defied description. Revelation 13, verse 2. And by the way, a lot of things that we get for 
from Daniel help us understand Revelation. And a lot of things in Revelation help us understand Daniel because oftentimes they're talking about the same event. It gives the same timeline, the same description. You can tell that they're, they're related. So, it seems to indicate that this will be a mongrel beast made up of parts from the other three, the lion, the bear, and the leopard. Its main function was destruction. It has iron teeth, very fierce. What it doesn't tear apart with its teeth, it tramples down. This beast is the thing about God's revelation that most puzzles Daniel. Daniel wanted to know about this beast. Well, first, which kingdom is it? The kingdom that followed Greece is Rome. Roman legions with spears spread all the way around the Mediterranean and as far north as England and as far eastward to almost to India. These soldiers trampled kingdoms. Everyone feared them. Israel, like other nations, was under the boot of Rome. Christ was born when Israel was under the domination of Caesar. Second, notice that this fourth beast has ten horns. Verse 24 tells us that these ten horns are ten kingdoms. Horns represent that which is the center of power. Not surprising since a horn in the Old Testament was the symbol of power. Animals used horns to gain dominance over other animals. In the end times, I believe that the old Roman Empire will be revived again. Something that many leaders have tried to do and yet failed. Now, something that comes out of this, out of those ten horns, is a little horn. <clears throat> the ten horns are ten kings over kingdoms. And to have a king, you must have a kingdom and vice versa. But the little horn will come to dominate these ten kingdoms. He starts small. He's a little horn. He conquers three of the kings and then controls the whole group. This little horn has eyes like the eyes of a man, speaking of his crafty intelligence. He is powerful, and it shows. He's a boastful little guy. The scope of Israel is covered from hundreds of years before Christ to eternity. Her whole history is laid out in a prophetic quilt for all to see. Four kingdoms will dominate her something Luke calls the times of the Gentiles, chapter 21, verse 24. And that is really key. And the last years of this plan, God will conquer all who oppose him and set up the Son of God ruling over Israel. Now, Art, last week you asked me for some dates, and so I've got those for you here. Um, Starting in 605 B.C., Babylon comes as a major power, the lion. In 539 B.C., Medo-Persia conquered the Babylonians. That's the bear, 
Medo-Persia is the bear. In 333 BC, Greece, led by Alexander, conquers Medo-Persia. And Greece is represented by the leopard. And then in 63 AD, Rome conquers Greece. And then there will be a tribulation period, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. One contrast to all these beasts that you see in the beginning of this chapter, beginning of chapter 7 of Daniel, we see something, someone rather, called the Ancient of Days. Let's read these verses. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now, it's been talking about beasts, right? This is not a beast. He's more human but eternal. His clothing was white as snow. White clothing represents righteous purity. The hair of his head was white like wool. White hair speaks of judging with wisdom. His throne was flaming with fire. And fire is a symbol of judgment as well as theophanies in Scripture. And its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. So he's got innumerable servants fitting God. The court was seated and the books were opened. Time for judgment. The books record the deeds of men. And then verses 9 and 10, there's the Ancient of Days. You may have guessed his identity. He's none other than God the Father. He's not a beast. He's more human, but eternal. His white clothing speaks of his righteousness. His hair is like wool. speaks that he is wise. He's able to judge as well. So this is an Old Testament appearance of God. The attendants 10,000 times 10,000 speak of his, his servants, fitting of the Creator. The court is in session. The books are open. Time for judgment. And these books record the deeds of people to be judged. And this is also known as the judgment to the nations. Verse 11. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words of the horn that he was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. This little horn is like a little kid before the principal with a paddle. He doesn't know when to shut his mouth. <laughs> In reality, this little horn is the Antichrist. And the evil ruler who is aligned with Satan. In the short time he exercises his power, he dominates the earth. He's a wicked individual. He's a master of intrigue. He kills anyone that gets in his way. He even calls for everyone to worship him as God. 
His reign is brought to an end by the one true God, and he is thrown into fire, into hell. Have you ever wondered what happens next? Well, first there were the beasts, then the Ancient of Days, and now someone who appears before the throne. So read with me. Forgive me, I've lost my place. There we go. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Who is this Son of Man? Jesus. None other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to Him. In His coming, He's given authority to rule. All nations are under His power, and they worship Him. The Antichrist wanted this. The Son of God is worthy of this. He is worshipped. This kingdom is known as the millennium. Christ will rule. Freeing the nation Israel from Gentile domination brings an end to that time of the Gentiles I mentioned. This will involve conquering the conquerors. God will act as a great warrior. Psalm 2 says he shall shatter the other nations. All the talk about God as a loving and patient God, kind God, is true. But patience has its limits. As nations grow increasingly, increasingly wicked, there will come a time when God puts an end to the rebellion. False religions, sorcery, witchcraft, New Age occultism, violence, murder, will be dealt with. God will conquer his enemies in a time known as the tribulation. The tribulation has two purposes. One is to put an end to the rebellion against his kingdom. And two, to prepare Israel by turning him back to himself. I'm going to give you some timelines to kind of summarize what we've been talking about and Hopefully, hopefully crystallize it in our thinking. So here's the first timeline. This is the one reviewing the beasts. The first kingdom was the lion, or Babylon. Daniel predicted another kingdom represented by a bear, which would be Medo-Persia, and described its characteristics. God showed Daniel a third kingdom, 
a leopard, which represents Greece. The fourth kingdom was, a, was revealed as a horned beast. Ghastly and fierce. Then God would replace these kingdoms. During the tribulation, he will destroy all who oppose his son. Next, he will set up a kingdom on earth, which we call the millennial kingdom or millennium for short. Now, what is the one major period of history which we've not dealt with? The church age. There's no mention of the church so far. That was not revealed in the Old Testament, so it obviously couldn't be in the book of Daniel, right? This church age, which began in 33 AD and continues until the rapture, that was never revealed. We talked about mysteries. That's a mystery. Um, Ephesians chapter 3 describes it that way. Something that he had never revealed until the New Testament. So, here's another timeline, and it covers events like the rapture, and we're going to talk about that. So, watch the next version of this timeline, which zeroes in on the end-time events. Now, the church began just after the cross, on the day of Pentecost. The church will continue until the rapture, which prepares the way for the tribulation period. This will conclude with the second coming of Christ, which ushers in the millennium. Now, what is the time for all this? By the way, don't feel like you have to absorb all this. We will review these later and go into more explanation as the sessions continue. Today is just an introduction. So, now, third timeline. We're going to kind of lay out the, the timing as we are described, as they're described in the scriptures. Um, we know that we are in the church age. You're in church, right? <laughs> All right. And uh, when will the rapture take place? We don't know. We don't know. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, following the rapture is the tribulation. We'll call it the trib for short. And there are, uh, it is followed by the millennium and the church age will last how long? We don't know how long. The tribulation will be a time for the wrath of God, symbolized by that red star or burst. Um, and there's no point in us being in the tribulation because we will not suffer God's wrath. But the tribulation has two periods, each of three and a half years apiece. We see that in Daniel and we see it in the book of Revelation. They confirm that. And then there's the millennium. What does millennium mean? Yeah, a thousand years. And that is followed by eternity. Both the millennium and the uh, uh, future of eternity are described with the same expression, new heavens and new earth. Millennium is described that way at the end of Isaiah. Uh, at the end of the whole Bible, at the end of the book of Revelation, it's also described with those words, new heavens and new earth, referring to eternity. So which is it? Is it the millennium or is it eternity? 
Well, I like what uh, Mark Hitchcock described it as, a uh, good prophecy um, author. He says, the millennium is like the front porch of eternity. They're both part of the new heavens and the new earth. The millennium lasts for a thousand years. And how long does eternity last? Forever. There you go. You're good. All right. The Old Testament economy deals with who? The Jews. Israel. Right. Very good. The New Testament epistles deal with the church. Don't confuse them. If you confuse them, all kinds of mistakes in prophecy will occur. And the rapture takes... What does the rapture take? The church. Jewish people, by virtue of being Jewish alone, don't get raptured. Christ comes back for his believers, those who follow him. So when you think about the Old Testament, think of Israel. When you think about the New Testament epistles, think of the church. The church is the body of Christ. It began on the day of Pentecost and will endure until we go home to be with him at the rapture. Now, there's no mention of this in the Old Testament. It's a mystery. It had never been revealed. Now, here's the application. Be looking for our hope. It's the blessed hope. It's the promise of every believer. We all go up together, and it'll be a glorious event. All the problems that you've got, gone. All the problems of health, solved. The disappointments of earth give way to the beauty and glory of heaven. It will be natural and easy for us to worship there. We won't have a sin nature. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're looking for me to be rid of that, right? Okay, and, and he will be perfect and glorious. And some people think, well, heaven, that'll be boring. How could it be boring if it's perfect? <laughs> it is our blessed hope. And if we believe this, shouldn't it change the way we live? Amen. Father God, thank you for your great truth. We thank you for what you have revealed. You've not told us when, but you've told us the what and the how. And we thank you for that. And Lord, we look forward to any day that you would choose to come. That would be a blessed day. Praise your name. Amen.